Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. We never managed to get through the doors of gymnastics. So we had some significant concern from the very beginning. Just because you understand the sport doesn't mean you understand safeguarding. Weight confidence around competitions all of those things that i would say are still affecting her damaging her somebody told me about british athletes commission and it was the best thing that i ever did to make that phone call we really did work flexibly with with every individual when we talk about how team gb and paralympics gb going to do at the games it's all about medal targets and You know, what other targets are we looking at around the athlete journey, the athlete experience? This is a special edition of the podcast with the BAC, the British Athletes Commission. The White Review was a truly independent investigation into the sport of gymnastics in this country, following significant allegations of mistreatment. In this episode, we'll look at the role the BAC played in securing that review, its supporting of athletes and ensuring something like this never happens again. Coming up, you'll hear from someone affected, the teams of experts who set up and led the support systems and therapy sessions, and the new chief executive of the British Athletes Commission, London 2012 Olympic champion, Anna Watkins. These cultural shifts will happen, and if they, if they don't happen on our watch, that's a big failure for our generation of sports leadership. The British Athletes Commission represents the interests of athletes in Great Britain, providing independent, confidential and expert advice. It's working with Team England's competitors at this summer's Commonwealth Games, after doing the same for British athletes at both the Summer and Winter Olympics and Paralympics in Tokyo and Beijing. It supported more than 280 individuals and their families affected by abuse and mistreatment in gymnastics. Now it wants to ensure this isn't the end of the process, but the start of a new chapter, not just for British athletes, but for British sport in general. In a moment, we'll hear from Elaine Francis, the BAC's Head of Safeguarding, Dr Misha Gervis, who facilitated group therapy, the mother of a young gymnast who'd been affected by the issues raised, and how the team worked to provide effective support to so many gymnasts. But first, Chair of the BAC, Vicky Agar, talking to Michael on why the BAC pushed so hard for an independent review. The BAC first got involved following lots of members of staff watching the Athlete A documentary that was aired on Netflix. It triggered some concern for us immediately because we knew at gymnastics in the UK, we couldn't have complete confidence that the athletes or the gymnasts within that sport were having a brilliant experience. At the time, we had gymnastics as a bit of a red flag sport. Um, We couldn't manage access to the sport in the way that we were having with other sports in the system. So whereas we have brilliant, healthy relationships with many sports now going in, speaking with athletes, sharing um, with them the role and function of the BAC as an independent support, we never managed to get through the doors of gymnastics. So we we had some significant concern from, from the 
very beginning. It was pretty obvious once that had aired through social media and other outlets that there was an issue within the UK and that documentary had, uh, I guess, set something off within the UK as well, sadly. And um, to that end, we saw that gymnastics was responding to those um, allegations and concerns. They already had existing, many existing allegations and concerns that we became aware about. But the, the biggest worry for us was that gymnastics was going to manage those concerns internally. Um, and they had announced that they were going to do an independent review. Um, but that independent review was kind of orchestrated and going to be led by the sport in the form of them appointing their own QC to run the review, agreeing to assist the administration of that review, agreeing the terms of reference for the review and paying the QC at the end of the review. And to me and the rest of the team at the BAC, that was a significant concern particularly with the widespread allegations and the seriousness of the allegations, I, I felt very strongly that this needs to be a thoroughly independent review where there was no opportunity um, to brush any, anything under the carpet and for concerns and, and the gymnastics complaints to be heard thoroughly and fully and, and given the time and attention that they needed to. So we championed quite publicly, because I don't think there was a lot of appetite initially for there to be a thoroughly independent review. And we were really pleased off the back of that, that Sport England and UK Sport decided to commission their own review with Anne White. So how did you push then for this properly independent review? You mentioned Sport England and UK Sport. What was the process from your organisation? First of all, we asked gymnastics um, and we, we put pressure on them um, to go thoroughly independent. It didn't seem that there were, we were going to get an awful lot of movement there. Um, so we did write a formal letter to UK Sport to say how we felt that um, we should, that there was a requirement for there to be a completely independent review. Um, and then in parallel to that, actually, I, I put out an opinion article uh, in one of the newspapers and actually they were fantastic in kind of putting pressure on really uh, as well um, to ensure that this was a, 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 a thorough independent review. And finally, from you for the moment, what was the role of the BAC whilst this review was taking place? So the role of the BAC was quite wide ranging, actually, and I'm really proud of, of the team for stepping up. I know that they they cared passionately about supporting um, those that were making allegations. Um, so we, we quite quickly um, funded through UK Sport and Sport England, established a helpline um, in conjunction with the NSPCC and seconded members of staff from the NSPCC over to the BAC to man that helpline and, and listen to um, anybody that wanted to come forward with any allegations or, you know, even just to talk to somebody. And as a consequence, um, we ended up dealing with a significant number of cases from an end-to-end case management perspective. Um, and it's still ongoing. And I'm really pleased to say, actually, three of the girls from the SPCC are now working for us full-time in established roles at the BAC as an ongoing commitment to safeguarding in sport. Elaine, we'll begin with you. We heard from Vicky some of the headlines about the BAC response when you started hearing 
some of the stories from the gymnasts involved here. When did this first kind of land on your desk, if you like, as head of safeguarding? And what were the initial steps that you were able to take? At the time of the Athlete Aid documentary on Netflix, I was a team manager at the NSPCC helpline. My background is in social work. The BAC then put out a, a secondment jointly with the NSPCC, which I applied for. So I came across to the BAC shortly after the, the setting up of the helpline to manage that small team. So when we first came across, we were met with numerous disclosures and allegations from gymnasts as young as, as young as six, um, coaches, parents, adult gymnasts, ranging all the way to you know, individuals in their now late 50s who were still experiencing the impact of of their abuse and mistreatment from, from when they were very young. Um, so our first job when, when we came across was to create a, a specialist case management system. So every individual who consented to that referral was allocated their own case manager. So they had a, a dedicated point of contact from the, you know, their, their first contact from the helpline. And we worked with them on a, on a range of issues. So I guess our, our first priority was making sure that all of those safeguarding referrals had been followed up and there was no ongoing or live risk as a result of, of the disclosure they had made. And then we set about supporting everyone who wanted to, to respond to Anne White's call for evidence. Following that, we then attended ladder meetings. We sort of really felt passionate to challenge those stereotypes of sport that we were being met with um, by individuals who maybe didn't understand the, the complexity of sport and particularly in gymnastics. We supported families through processes with statutory agencies, whether that be with the police or with LADO. And then we facilitated more specialist support. So on top of having an individual case manager, we were able to offer one-to-one clinical support and assessment to individuals who we were concerned maybe posed the most risk or we weren't sure how they were managing with the impact of the increased media attention. And then we also facilitated online group therapy sessions. And as Vicky said, our team is still very much here. Post-publication, we've continued to offer support to individuals and make sure that there was remains a safe place to go that safeguarding referrals are effectively completed and that emotional support and signposting is is in place for everyone. I'll bring Dr. Misha Jervis in now. What was your role then when people were being referred to you? How did that unfold, if you like? So the idea was is that we we created online therapy um, three sessions. I, I use um, a system which is about brief therapy, so acceptance and commitment therapy. It was the therapeutic mode. We worked with over 85 individuals in those groups, um, the youngest of which was nine, the oldest of which was 50, which I think, again, speaks to how embedded and normative this culture of abusive coaching was and is so we'd have a group of really young kids we'd have a group of maybe slightly older people um, and then we we delivered the online therapy um, which again is a really unique thing that has has actually been done to ensure that as many people as possible 
were able to have some therapeutic support through this process. And, you know, there were some very powerful moments in those groups of maybe for some people, it was the first time that what they'd experienced had actually been labelled as abuse. Many of them understanding each other's stories found strength in that. That piece of work was happened over over a year, so a number of groups happening sequentially. And Elaine, I think it's important to say that whilst we are discussing specialist case management systems, we're discussing referrals, at the heart of this were people, were individuals, and it's important then that those people felt confident that you were offering somewhere that was safe, somewhere that was trusted and somewhere that was independent? Yeah, and I think that was very difficult in in the very early days because a lot of these individuals who came forward had come forward before. They had tried to have their voices heard. They had tried to make complaints and they had never been listened to. They, They had never been believed and there was a huge distrust then between the families and individuals and essentially the system that was supposed to be in place to help them. But the team worked really hard to to break those barriers. And I think very early on, we managed to build a, a trusting and, you know, meaningful relationships. And as I think the gymnastics community became aware of the support we were offering, we saw another sort of second wave of individuals who knew the people that we were already supporting, who had said, make contact with the BAC and, and, and they can support you. So it was really powerful and, and it was a real privilege for these individuals to to be able to tell us their stories and we can get them the support that they, you know, some of them have deserved to have for for the last 30 years. And you've spoken obviously about what systems were put in place and and how important those were, but in in practical terms, in day-to-day terms, how were you supporting in terms of people that were maybe attending interviews or people that were being offered one-to-one support, clinical support perhaps? I think our response was was very fluid and I think it had to. Everyone was coming to us with such individual needs and individual risks. Our team were from a variety of backgrounds. So my background is social work, Manny's background is in probation, Emma's background is in education and child protection. So we were able to allocate individuals where we thought, you know, someone would be able to respond um, most appropriately to them. And we really did work flexibly with, with every individual. We allowed them almost to take control of their support package and engage with us as much or as stood back as they needed to, whether that be physically attending Anne White's interview with them, attending police interviews with them, or some people just needed a safe space to talk for, for 10 minutes a week and, and feel heard and feel listened to. And again, on the other scale, we People just needed a bit of practical support and a little bit of procedural support. So how do I do this? How do I do that? So it was really, really varied and it was hugely led by every family and every individual. And we sort of became as involved or as stood back as they needed. And that changed over time as well. There were times where families needed more from us and then and then a little bit less. And we just responded as and when we, we had those contacts. And Dr. Jervis, how important is it that those people that were being supported here realised that they weren't alone, that perhaps the shared experience would be part of the beginning of the healing process here? Well, I think that's one of the key underlying principles of group therapy, um, which is why we did group therapy, um, because you're, you're absolutely right. When suddenly you hear that your experiences that often, often these people thought that they were to blame for, 
somehow if they'd have been different, if they'd have been a better gymnast, if they'd have done something else, then the coaches would have treated them better. So they were they were holding on to an awful lot of guilt about their experiences and thinking it was about them. So the power of sharing, the power of disclosing to an audience, to a group who really understood it. I mean, gymnastics is a very niche sport. Um, I, I was an international coach for many, many years, so I understand what happens in that space. But to be able to have a shortcut, a shorthand to, oh, yes, you know, when we were doing X, Y, Z and everyone understood was, again, really, really powerful because the people who sit outside of that world don't understand it. Outside of sport, looking in, it's a completely different thing. Inside sport, those experiences, sharing those experiences and feeling like you were supported by each other. I think what is incredible from these small groups is that they form their own networks. And we have small groups of parents and gymnasts who are still in contact with each other from those group sessions today. And we continually hear from them just what an incredible support network and how powerful that connection has been for them. Well, thank you for the moment to Vicky, Elaine and Misha. But let's hear more now about the support that the hundreds of gymnasts and their families have been receiving from the British Athletes Commission. Let's talk to Helen. Now, Helen's not her real name, but she is the mother of one of the young gymnasts who has been affected. And if I can, let me start by asking you about some of the background to what actually happened with your daughter. My daughter started gymnastics when she was about six. Um, It was in a local club. Within a week, she had gone from like a fun group right up to basically the top layer of the club. I'd had some concerns um, from the beginning, really, about safeguarding. I work in education and it wasn't until she reached 10 that things started to change a little bit and I became more aware of things that I wasn't happy with, of just the way that the gymnasts were treated and it was only when she left last year that a lot of the issues became more apparent and therefore I thought that was the time to make, I would say, a complaint. It wasn't a complaint initially, it was more of a way of pushing for change. And what can you tell us about some of the behaviours that you witnessed or were aware of that made you so uncomfortable? So there was a big black curtain that you couldn't see the children behind when they trained. They trained for a lot of hours. It was maybe five, six days a week, sometimes from four till 8.30, Um, At the time, my daughter was 10, which was obviously uh, a lot of training. And then there was lots of issues that we realised around food as well. Again, it wasn't until after that I realised food was such an issue. It was the way that the children were spoken to within training, when on competitions. It was just a really negative atmosphere and... Parents were really scared to say anything because if they did, it was almost taken out on their child, you know, that they would maybe not be worked with. It just made it worse if you said anything. And I did bring up quite a few different safeguarding issues, often about other things. Um, And I felt my 
daughter kind of paid the price for that. And what support did you get and what support did you get from the British Athletes Commission, for example, when you did speak out and when you did report your suspicions and what you knew had been happening? So initially I didn't know where to turn. I initially contacted the local authority and spoke to them. I also contacted British Gymnastics. But again, because there was so much in the press, I, I kind of felt like, could I trust them? And then somebody told me about British Athletes Commission and it was the best thing that I ever did to make that phone call. They were fantastic. They immediately believed us, which I think that was one of the hard things. British Athletes Commission, from day one, they were there to support us. I was very much of the mindset that when I did make a report to British Gymnastics, that I didn't want it to be just a complaint or a rant. I just wanted it to be very factual. I tried to take the emotion out of it. I read their terms of reference, their protocols, their policies. And in all my reports, I summed it up against all of those because I think otherwise, although you have to have some kind of emotion in it, it gets lost within that. But to speak to the British athletes, I was also able to put some of that emotion and like rage and the guilt and everything else. And they would just listen and they would say, no, what you are doing is right. What children are going through is wrong and, we, and it needs to change. So I can't thank them enough. And in practical terms, how did they help you? How did they help your daughter? For me, Emma was just always there at the end of the phone. I would send her any emails I was going to send to British Gymnastics. She kind of coordinated with the local authority as well, which I had some frustration with. She set my daughter up with um, a psychotherapist and had a session there. So we were signposted to different help. Also, Elaine from British Athletes joined me on a meeting with um, the local authority. So... Yeah, they've just been there, really. And for you, and I guess very importantly for your daughter, how how are you now? How's your daughter now? Um, she's okay. She, you know, she's she can't talk about Jim, the old Jim, um, very much. She still compares it to her new one, which is fantastic. You know. The safeguarding from day one, we've got a parent handbook. Um, if there's an issue, you're contacted. So she's okay. There are still issues around weight, around confidence, around competitions. All of those things that I would say are still affecting her, damaging her to a certain extent. But she'll get there. Finally, your message is... To someone in your situation, the British Athletes Commission is is there. It's an option. It, it helped you in your circumstances, in your case? I would say 100%. They are the best people to speak to. I would just recommend British Athletes Commission are the people on your side. Well, thank you so much for your honesty. We wish you and, of course, your daughter all the very best in the future. So we've been hearing about the response from the British Athletes Commission and the people that they've been helping. But moving forward, what lessons can be learnt and understood from the process that's taken place? Let's bring back in the Head of Safeguarding, Elaine Francis. 
Coming from a child protection background and into a sports environment, I think the first lesson that needs to be learned is that safeguarding standards in sport must be brought into line with other sectors such as local authorities and, and schools. And for me, a big part of that is around accountability and decision making, accountability and professional conducts, professional practice, independence within the system and really meaningful education and training that is no longer seen as, as a tick box exercise. And in the future, sport governing bodies can't be responsible for managing this themselves. Is that one of the key take homes from this process? I think that there's a lot of key take homes, isn't there? And I think if if the right foundations are in place, it would open doors for complaints and safeguarding issues to be managed correctly. So whilst there's a lot of conversation about independent ombudsmans and the end of sports marking their own homework. And I think that can't be seen as the golden bullet in safeguarding in sport because we have to get the foundations right. The the coaches working on the ground with children need to know how to work with children. They need to undergo meaningful safeguarding training. Um, they need to be accountable for their actions. And then the next level if if an individual or a family, you know, step up from on the ground, if, if you make a safeguarding complaint, people that receive that complaint need to know how to receive that complaint. They need to know how to identify what a concern is. I think one thing that was brought out in the White Review was a real over-reliance on volunteers in safeguarding and welfare roles. And I'm a real advocate for bringing specialist safeguarding skills from outside of sport into sport. Just because you understand the sport doesn't mean you understand safeguarding and, and this insularity needs to become old fashioned. We need to be welcoming people in from with, with those expert expertise so that they can effectively manage concerns. And then if you take another, another step up from that layer, safeguarding needs to be at the core of your organization from the top down. Your board needs to understand exactly what's happening on the floor. And I think we need to move from compliance to culture. So these organisations have fantastic safeguarding policies and a, a safeguarding board member and codes of conduct on, on nice posters on their gymnastics floor. But until that lives and breathes into the culture and we see a real shift in that, these lessons aren't aren't going to be learned. So I think that's it's, it's that compliance to culture and changing every part of your organisation so that safeguarding is no longer a tick box, but it actually lives and breathes in every decision and every practice that, that you carry out. How important is it that the athletes, the individuals know that they now have a voice, they now have a safe place where they can go, which perhaps you know hasn't been communicated well enough in the past? I think there's still a long way to go, especially in the elite end of the sport and particularly the world-class programme in ensuring that athletes do know they can have a voice and allowing them to understand how they can use it. And I think that's where the BAC can play a role in athlete education, athlete awareness, what are their rights and how can they how can they be empowered to, to use their voice to help create that positive shift? And that's something that I'm really keen to to work on and move forward to, to really empower the athletes so that we never end up in a situation again where their voices have been silenced for so long. You talked as well about culture change. How do we go about beginning to change 
cultures in organisations? Ultimately, it has to come from the top down um, and it has to be the golden thread within your organisation. And sadly, we're not going to see that overnight. We're not going to see that in, you know, in six months time. It's going to take a shift in, in every cog within your organisation to see that positive outcome really on the ground running. And I think the only way we can begin to achieve that is everyone needs to stop and listen and, and take count to what has been said in the white review and go back to rebuilding those foundations and, and almost sort of take a pause and reset where we are. And just finally, in this section then from you, Elaine, I mean, lots of people came forward and lots of people, you know, were able to use the services that you provided. And I guess you'd like to say thank you to those people, because without them, these culture changes that we're talking about might never even be starting to happen. Every individual that felt able to pick up that phone or send an email or whatever, write a letter, whatever step they so courageously took back in July 2020, they should be so immensely proud of of that coverage that they found because without them, we wouldn't be sitting at this moment now and having this conversation that I hope means no gymnast will ever have the same experience as the little gymnast, you know, as the gymnast did that came forward and we can really see a, a meaningful change in British sports. So, my thank you is for trust for trusting me and my team and the BAC with your experience so that we were able to make sure they were heard by the right person so that we can see changes being made. Vicky, I'd like to bring you back in here now just to get a concluding thought, if you like, on the role of the BAC's role in this process and, and what you think now needs to happen. What are some of the lessons that have been learnt? I think Elaine surmised really well in terms of just broader lessons for the, the entire system um, and then building on that specifically for the BAC, what I would love to see happen really quickly is there be a mandate for sports to meaningfully engage with the BAC and encourage the athletes to um, use our service. So we have a brilliant relationship with a number of sports now where we're able to have full access to the athletes and they are encouraged to come to us at any time if they wanted that independent support. But there are still some sports, sadly, that aren't so welcoming and don't encourage athletes to use us and certainly don't allow us to come in to the athletes' environment for them to get to know us and to build that trust. So it's really important that there's a mandate there that the BAC can be a little bit more proactive within working and engaging and building trust in relationship with athletes so that we don't get to the point where there's another massive scandal within a sport or another awful thing that's happened to a group of athletes that we can work really well with, with our membership to nip problems in the bud straight away and to champion them, to be there for them and um, represent them. Um, so it sounds really simple, but at the moment it's not happening. So that would be my first thing. I think athlete representative roles in sports are good, but they're certainly not enough. And it's a huge responsibility to put on one individual or two individuals. Um, they don't have the training um, to do that. So I think there's a role for an athlete representing sport, but I think they need to be backed up by an independent professional body as well. 
And then I think there's a leadership responsibility um, to appropriately resource athlete welfare, safeguarding, well-being, everything that Elaine has talked about. Um, and that goes through, obviously, we have a mandate for world-class performance athletes, but that, that goes right the way through, particularly with those early maturation sports like swimming, like gymnastics, where actually you're you're almost a bit of a performance athlete by age 13 14 and you're training significant hours in a week and you're in a performance club that might perhaps feed into a national squad and i don't think we've got that properly covered yet and and potentially there's a there's a space for the bac to be able to support perhaps a little bit further down the talent pathway and so there may well be conversations coming about that Without shadow of a doubt, there must be fully independent investigations, not just independent in that you buy a couple of independent people in to do something for you on a, a on a review that you set, a fully independent review um, and investigations where it's proportionate. So not on every single case, but where you think it's probably more significant than one or two individuals, then, then at, with, without a doubt. Um, and a little bit to what Elaine said around just a whole scale shift in, 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 in cultural shift. And we talk about this all the time, good culture, bad culture. But actually, it's changing the narrative around, um, you know, when we talk about how Team GB and Paralympics GB are going to do at the Games, it's all about medal targets and top five on the medal table or uh, where, you know, I'd perhaps like to see from UK sport um, and others, you know, what other targets are we looking at around the athlete journey, the athlete experience and everything that's aligned to their medals and more strategy. We are about medals, but we're about much more than that now, I hope. So let's set some appropriate targets for that as well. Well, I'm delighted that the new CEO of the British Athletes Commission, Anna Watkins, joins us now. And and Anna, you know, we have watched our televisions and we've stood on towpaths and cheered you on and you were one of our 2012 heroes. But as Vicky was saying there, elite sport has to be more than just those medal moments. As wonderful as they are seeing you on the podium and hearing national anthems and seeing gold medals, we have learned, haven't we now, lessons that elite sport needs to be more than that. I've been you know, fortunate enough to see sport at its best, but also I've been around long enough to see sport at its worst. And sport needs to learn from where it does things well and take that into um, you know, very, very deliberately into problem areas. I think coming in now at this stage um, after this report, it's a, you know, it's an incredible time to get started because we have this um, really well evidenced piece of information about, you know, exactly what's happened in one sport. And I know that it's happening in other sports to a greater or lesser degree. And I've seen patterns, you know, over my time in this environment, risky areas where you kind of know that if a, if a few key risk factors are present, then, then athletes are probably, you know, having a bit of a rough time here and there. And, they are, as has been touched on so many times in this, in this conversation already, this big power gap between coaches and athletes and where athletes are really kind of weak in the system and don't have a strong voice. And I think, you know, athletes who are aware of us um, or, or aware of their whistleblowing opportunities, you know, that's a terrifying thing for a young athlete to go and do. And they, they don't want their sport to be, um, they don't want to be in the papers. They don't want their sport to have funding cut. They don't want to disrupt their environment, but they, they need to say something. So I think, 
one of our roles going forwards is to strengthen that voice by making it just kind of continuous and low level and making sure those conversations are happening and feeding through all the time just as a as a as a normal natural everyday feedback mechanism what's really happening at the grassroots of sport so athletes can can tell the system can speak to the system without it having to be you know some potentially career-ending decision to go and do that um, so I think that's you know, strengthening the, that athlete voice is something we as an organization I want to do much better another one is um, governance and Sometimes you see governance structures in, in NGBs where the coach or the chief coach or the PD isn't really answerable to anybody because there's nobody above them who really has that expertise of what goes on in, in sport. And that can and, can and must be tackled. We have amazing coaches in this country and coaches as a group need to help each other crack this and share that best practice and, and teach each other how to do this well. Um, it's all very well sort of saying, are we, you know, you mustn't do that and you mustn't do the other. And I mean, everybody in the system is competitive and people want to know, well, how, how do we do it then? And we've got to build a way where people can learn that from each other and it gets corrected when things go wrong in a, in a continuous fashion rather than these one-off big reviews where it's already too late for a bunch of, bunch of athletes. So that's what I want to see. I want to see a system where it's self-correcting. Um, I, I hope you'll see a sort of a slightly louder BAC who's taking those conversations and challenging the system and being really, really clear on the changes we we believe the system needs to make so that this is the generation that sorts stuff out. That's my call to arms for the, the leadership of sport um, that's around today to say, you know, at some point, these cultural shifts will happen. And if they if they don't happen on our watch, that's a big failure for our generation of sports leadership. So let's be the ones to, to crack this difficult stuff, to, to, to really sort out how to get coaches to, to know how to do this brilliantly. You know, let's, let's have Great Britain be the world leader in awesome coaching and awesome systems that, that develop people and enable people to thrive under pressure and enable people to cope and equip athletes with all of the toolkits and all the skills and all the information they need to do that. Let's show the world how to do that, that, the, that there is a better way. And I, I really believe in our organisation and, and in, in the organisations out there that the will is there. And we really want to help point the way to do that. Anna Watkins, the new CEO of the British Athletes Commission on the aftermath of the White Review and what needs to happen now. If you'd like more information on the BAC or you're a world-class programme athlete with automatic membership, check out the website britishathletes.org. Podcast Network.